0: We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Rebecca Rose and Susan Wolfe. Usually, when we talk about privatization, we focus on the transfer of government services and assets to the private sector. We less often think about it in terms of space, Yet even a cursory glance at history shows the shifting of space from common or public hands into private hands was central to how our current world has come to exist. It took one form in Europe, with peasant communities getting kicked off the land in centuries past so big landowners could take over, and another form, a colonial form, in the Americas. And it still happens, not just in the ongoing struggles between indigenous land defenders and resource extraction industries, but in a different way in cities. However else you understand them, the shopping mall replacing the public square, the suburban replacing the urban, then more recently the gentrified urban replacing the what and displacing the who that still remained in many urban environments, are all examples of privatization of space. Access to public or common space is restricted in a way that forces us, increasingly, to access space, community, and the broader spectrum of things we need to live our lives via the highly limiting logics of the market. A recent example in Halifax of struggle to defend community-grounding public space has focused on a particular building, the Khyber Building. From its beginnings as a Church of England property in 1888, this elegant three-story structure has become a beloved community space in downtown Halifax. The combination of low rents and an amazing location have meant that, particularly from the 1960s onwards, and in a different way after the city of Halifax bought it in 1994, the Khyber Building has housed an astounding range of community spaces, arts groups, musical venues, queer endeavours, businesses and services grounded in immigrant communities, offices for community groups, and much more. Yet after years of deferred maintenance and ongoing uncertainty around governance and use of the building, on January 13, 2014, the city abruptly ordered all tenants of the building out and closed it down. At the end of July of last year, city staff recommended that the building be declared surplus and sold, and in response, an intense grassroots campaign emerged with the goal not only of saving the building, but of finding a way to make it a sustainable and accessible hub for a diverse range of community endeavors well into the future. Rose and Wolf are both active members of Friends of the Khyber, and they talk with me about the history of the building, their successful initial push to fend off the city's attempts to sell it, and their ongoing work to find a lasting way to preserve this important public space. We spoke by Skype to phone from Halifax, and please note that our connection was an uncharacteristically poor one, so there may be moments where a little more attention than usual is required to derive full benefit from their words about this important struggle that has galvanized a broad cross-section of people in Halifax. My is Rebecca Rose,
1: and I am a feminist and queer activist from Halifax Nova Scotia, and a member of Sons of the cover My name is Susan Moore, and I am an independent artist and also a certain art gallery, a public art gallery in Halifax. And Sons of the cover is a group that came together in August of citizens and artists and peers and musicians who were concerned about the potential sale of the cover building and wanted it to remain in art. The building 1588 Barrington is located right in Lantown, Halifax, along one of the main streets. It's a beautiful historic property. It's in a really high traffic area, and part of my interest in becoming involved was to keep as many places publicly owned as possible downtown. So I think all of us are on board thinking that it's important to have access to have a variety of different types of spaces available for people to use. And right now, there has been, for the past decade or more, a real trend towards filling off publicly owned buildings, particularly heritage buildings. A lot of them get torn down. There's no repercussions to the developers. So we've seen a lot of destruction that way. The space has a very rich history. It was built in the late 1800s and it originally was a Church of England building. And it's had a wide variety of uses. It's had alternative bookstores, health food stores, different cultural food. And my interest as a queer activist really revolved around the church, which was one of the were gay bars in Halifax, and it was just their community one gay bar in Halifax. And so if anything's going to be recognized as a historic gay queer and trans place in Halifax, it's the really queer, the tiger, and the tiger. It is an old Victorian building, so you walk up the front steps, and on the left is a space that used to house a bar. That was an important space where local music at, or start. that was a meeting place for artists and activists and immigrants. I think that space beforehand had had other uses. It's the old wood. It's the spiraling staircase in the middle. On the right side, there was what must have been either a retail space or office space. On the second floor, I think the most Remarkable feature is the big ballroom there. That was the main gallery space for the private Art Society most recently, I guess for about 25 years. And also has functioned as a music venue as well. It also functioned as a meeting space for community groups. something that, I mean, it's it, it, we have done a number of public consultations and we're always looking for <laughs> meeting spaces. For these public consultations, and there is a real deficit in the city for spaces like that. So, this is one of the spaces. It was one of the sites for an at night. So, we have thousands of people that night going through. That's one kind of the public art events that happens in the city. There's also been a lot of art interventions into that space. Jerry so you know Kennedy has done a series in each of the windows. Emily Davidson, who is part of this activist group and an artist herself and an activist, did a series on women in this and history and later history and wallpapered the walls. And some of that installation is still up. You go up the stairs, and there used to be a recording studio on the third floor with the back, right next to where the third area used to be. She actually a plastic. One of the reasons he is on the team is that he recorded the development room at a ghost there. So it has both a rich personal history for many people in Halifax as well as of its history, a rich cultural history of connections to you know, mm-hmm. all these different groups. And the personal floor for is the traditional corridor, so that's where the turret was, and the turret is named from the architectural feature, the turret. And it was in the late 70s, early 80s, and so I personally wasn't born, but it started off. It was owned eventually by the Gay Alliance for Equality. And it started out just as a weekly dance night. And as that weekly dance night got more and more interest, the Gay Alliance bought it from the original owner and ran a club there. And in the back, there was a little bit of a stage. And then there was a bar. And then I've heard stories of people walking down those large stairs and kind of scaping like room. And how it was your, your chance to kind of show your wares and show off with of that and make eye contact with you you were cruising there. Well, the Gay Alliance for Quality was one of the pre social groups for our current trans and organization, the NSWAP, the Nova Scotia Renewal Action Project. And so the Gay Line for Quality was the advocacy group for queer people or gay and lesbian, as they were at the time, people in Nova Scotia. And the bar was really what allowed it to do the work. It had a political action committee, and all of that work was funded by the revenue from the bar. And the bar actually started, like I said, from weekly dance parties, but the bar actually started with a few cases of gear on the roof. That's how they started to fund their actually users gear off the roof. So then that Robin Metcalf, who's a part of our group, who is a long-time queer activist, in Halifax notes that it was one of the first places to really be gay and lesbian. At the time, it was really a, a gay man's movement, a lesbian man's movement, and lesbians were quite active within the Gay Alliance for Equality and within the turret, and there was kind of a corner that was the lesbian corner, and they would go and hang out there and play school. And so that's a notable thing. And the Gay Alliance for Equality, Robin Elkin, actually had quite a few very working class men who were folks on there. So diversity in regard to women and diversity in regard to class. These things were really special about the Gay Alliance for Equality. Yeah. And it was a really active group and one that was recognized both nationally and internationally. So it has a rich school history. And more recently, the university has been retaining that space. And they had direction events, so there was a cabaret that was there, there was a disco that was there, and it was very much a nod to the history that One of the really special themes about this building is that when we talk about it as a cultural hub, we're not just talking about your community or just the arts community. We're really coming together of these various groups in the city, also the immigrant community, and. There aren't really other places like that that exist, and not very many public spaces. I think it came to be kind of in a key way. It was a building that had affordable rents, and so there were groups in it such as the Youth Clinic. That was one of the first clinics to deal with the AIDS crisis when it happened in the 80s and early 90s, not so forth. And like Susan said, there was a bar there, there was an alternative bookstore, which was like a left-leaning and queer and feminist friendly bookstore. There was a health food store. There was, I believe, a restaurant named the Khyber, which is where the Khyber got its name, that had Afghani groups. And so, it was just kind of a coming together of all of those different groups in the same space that so I think made it what it is today.
0: What was the chain of events that made the community aware that there was a danger to this space, a threat to losing this space for community purposes?
1: This has been an ongoing issue for what I know of the cyber history at the building. Because I'm an artist in the community, I know a little bit more about a cadre art society based within the building and more generally for other organizations there. So, I know that the Kyber Arts Society was tasked with being the building managers 25 years ago. And of course, this is not a particularly viable model. Um, what I know of it is that the city didn't have a manager running it. Cass uh,
0: and CAS is the Kyber Arts Society.
1: CAS was there, they so were the de facto maintainers at that place you know, past directors needed to, like, fix the boiler or they'd have to, you know, deal with whatever problems happened in the state. So there's also a history of neglect of the city not maintaining the building. And this isn't so much a list of things the city did wrong. So, I mean, would know, the situation is there hasn't been so much deferred maintenance, but rather that it's an unfortunate series of circumstances that has led to this and really ongoing problem. Past directors had have, have to maintain the building with, with whatever means they had at the disposal. It also is totally unreasonable for a director of an artisan center to have to be a building manager and a maintenance staff and a fixer and whatnot. So at various points over the past decade or so, different parts of the building have been replaced. At different points, we were allowed to have these more spaces in dancers, At other times we weren't times, people use the third floor as studio speakers, but other times we weren't allowed to do that. Sometimes, you know, we were allowed to have liquor license, other times we weren't. So really changing rules, there have been concerns about exceptions in the past and then the listing is unfounded. And you know, on and on. It's basically been an ongoing struggle with the city. So I fast forward to January two thousand fourteen. And the city, since last time, just closed the building. They cited safety concerns, which forced the anchor tenant, federal society, to relocate. The space of the workforce to relocate to, it is not in the center of the city. It's not functioning the same way. It also has a much higher rent, as well as a much lower capacity. It's in a residential area. I mean, there's just a lack of viable spaces for something like the federal society, It was really, uh, you know, one day things were business as usual, and then the next day the city stopped on a no trespassing sign, and and the building was closed. We're also not sure what other maybe interests in the building are in terms of other development or other developers. I mean, certainly a lot of the rest of Barrington Street has been pulled off to one developer in particular. For many years, there's been quite a few new stores and restaurants and different exciting spots happening on Barrington.
0: Tell me about the founding of Friends of the Khyber. We
1: have to give credit where credit is due, which is the wonderful and talented Emily Davidson. Emily is an artist in town, and Emily is also a core activist. And a lot of places in the city have been closing. A lot of art spaces and all ages spaces, places where artists, peers, musicians, I know have been closing and Emily was glad about that and she knew that we were all quite sad about that and so she gathered us up and assembled this team that became Sons of the Khyber. On the team we have Robin Metcalf who is a long time co-activist and the director of the St. Mary's Art Gallery. And we have Max Haven, who is a professor at Los Cad University and also a longtime activist. We have Pat Abreu, who is an environmental activist and also a DJ who has done shows in the Khyber. Of course, we have Joel Postet, who is a rock, folk musician, and producer and who made the Khyber famous with the Khyber, which is an album and a song. We were gathered together in August just to kind of on the defensive to try to keep this building because the Cyber our society really didn't have the capacity to do that on their own. We came together very quickly in August, and we started a petition, and we started a letter writing campaign, and we got over 2,300 signatures on that petition, and we had hundreds of letters go to the counselors to the point where they asked if we could get people to stop emailing them. But she said no. So it's counterintuitive to public campaign like that. We also had a public meeting because there was really a lack of public engagement around this. The public building That's part of our campaign. We wanted to remain public. We want people to be able to walk in and note it. We want it to be paid for with city money. So we had a meeting, and over a hundred people showed up at the beginning of September, which was a huge the and talked about how we could all work together to serve the Khyber. And this happened within the span of a month, not even. It was a huge ground of support, and the media attention was not massive. We've been talking a lot about the marginalized groups that have used the Khyber. And also, when we say public, we really do mean public. And the members of the community that came out were also, you know, just people that care about what's happening downtown, care about heritage building, I mean, Rebecca and I have particular reasons why we were interested in this building and these issues. I see the rest of the smaller group come of the fiber. But we really see ourselves as facilitators and advocates for a larger public. And we have gotten responses from people, you know, across the board, across ages and across the economic demographics. So this is really a larger issue. Mm-hmm. And it's about how we want our city to run. It's about the accountability of municipal council, about city staff. It's about the vision of a future Halifax that is not just private and not just controlled by various agendas, but really has input from the public at large. Mm-hmm. What I love about this campaign is that it's intergenerational. I mean, as a poor person, it's hard sometimes to find your elders and to share their stories. And this committee and this group is truly really intergenerational. There are people from all different age brackets, and we're working together very closely. And I think also, I mean, it's just cross section of interest.
0: So after that initial upsurge of support in August and September, was there any substantive response from the city? And also, how was the campaign continued from that point?
1: After our letter writing campaign and talking to all the municipal councilors, there was a unanimous vote from the council to temporarily take the cyber building off the of city budget. City staff were directed to compile two reports that they would present back to City Council. And, you know, success. <laughs> At the Council meeting, we had the whole gallery filled so, you with know, type Supporters and we had our t-shirts, so we had type of server t-shirts, which is become kind of the rallying sign, the hashtag, and the slogan of the campaign. And so we had so many supporters from the artist community, from the musician community, from the general public, from the trans community, from the audience. You could see that this city the counselors were feeling the pressure, and we are probably getting more input on this issue than they had on something in quite a while. And the momentum has continued. I think all of us that are in the active working group that stopped on the street many times a week and people asked us about what's going on with it, because work has continued. We've been working with a variety of different partners over, I guess, eight months to create a viable operating plan for the building, a plan that deals with the renovations that need to be happening, that deals with how it would operate and be managed. Yeah, so we took a little bit of time afterwards to retreat. It was a really intense campaign. We felt tired. And then we started doing some work with some architects and trying to figure out what could be done with the building. But also, one of the big issues from the reports when the tiger was put in danger in August in September was that they were saying it would be $4 million to renovate. And that had been a bit of $3 million dump from the last year. And so we got in touch with these architects to see if we could find out how much it would actually cost to we believed that the trust was instead of. So we started working with these architects, and we also reached out to Neptune Theatre, the non-profit theatre company that's on Argyle Street. And so ever since we've been working with these architects, Neptune, with the tribal art society, and trying to come up with a way to build this building and to put a viable plan at these main point. We've also been trying to keep up the public consultation. So we did have a public consultation in the winter to make sure that we were going along a track that was okay with our supporters because we went from just being an advocacy group that was advocating to keep this beloved building open and alive to working with these architects and the building of the team theater. So it was a bit of a change in direction and we got support at that meeting to keep going as we were. Our major goal is to create a viable public access, smart, and culture hub that the public can use. So in order to do that, there's a lot of steps involved. We've been working on creating an operating plan based on what the golden needs would be. Um, we've been working collaboratively to look at what the space needs would be. If we are doing renovations, we want to make sure that they're appropriate to the groups that would be using that space, so the public art society, theater groups that are interested, as well as small theater groups. that so we're looking at making the third floor into a small 80-seat theater, that also the Neptune for supported and other theater groups. Our public sessions have really been to build a collective vision of what the public can be, We've so asked for feedback on um, what we've been doing, but also to really get a sense of what made the space important mm-hmm. in the past and what people want to see in a space going forward. The building has had issues. I mean, one thing is that it hasn't been wheelchair accessible. So mm-hmm. having elevators in that space it has been really important to us. I mean, this is an important part of any public building. Also, having it accessible in terms of having washrooms that are gender neutral making sure that it's a space that can be really used by everyone. Part of that is also developing a and building management plan. We don't want to see a situation where one group is tasked with managing this building. We want to see a proactive and collaborative space that's sustainable. So part of that is having a management board that's made up of the various tenants so that they can work together to make sure that things are going along according to plans. And also having a building manager, an experienced building manager that can manage the building's needs. The architects that we've been working with, Edwin Jeffers and David Derrick, have been really incredibly generous in their time and knowledge. So they've been looking at the renovation and access requirements for the building, things like smaller, things like what the capacity would be for keeping the space, how many bathrooms we'd need, and just really creating a vision. And then we've also been looking at different funding sources. I mean, we'd certainly like the city to plenty of money for the deferred maintenance, but we're looking at other ways of being able to maintain a building, get profit-profit organizations from that
0: So you're thinking about different possibilities and plans. Is it at a stage where once you've put those together, you'll propose those to the city and the city will make a decision?
1: March, we found out that the two reports that had been requested at the September council meeting by Ray Mason, who was a council who's been an ally in the Smarton and first Center who founded the alarm about it. He owned a record store that was in the Kyber. and so he found the alarm about it, and he asked for the it on the building clock, but also the um, status of the yeah, art incubator or art hub each council has directed not towards the folks in the Khyber and from the Khyber Art Society to make it into a real art hub and to utilize this the football thing in the center of our downtown. And those of came back on the twenty second, but we didn't get any notice about it. we've been actually slowly organized around these building since August and the Khyber Art Society also wasn't alerted to these reports. And so we went from kind of working steadily on this plan with much more these architects to trying to go into crisis control again and, and mobilize around this problem last month. And so this Tuesday, actually, it's coming back to council because they just did the issue. And there's a motion that we're going to put forward to allow us to do our work and we get, to get CDCF to enable us to do our work and to work with to make the stuff
0: As you just heard, this interview was recorded just before the issue once again came before the Halifax Council. At that meeting, Councillor Way Mason presented a motion at the request of the Friends of the Khyber, as well as of the Khyber Arts Society and Neptune Theatre, for the municipality to postpone making any kind of a decision about the building for six months, to allow these community partners to finish preparing their proposal for the building. As well, the motion directed city staff to work with friends of the Khyber and their partners, and to give them access to crucial information as they prepare their proposal. While comments from a few members of the Council indicated an ongoing lack of understanding of exactly why maintaining the Khyber Building as a public space is such a high priority for many people in the community, many other members of Council were supportive, and the motion passed by a vote of 13 to 4. Friends of the Khyber, the Khyber Arts Society, and Neptune Theatre now have six months to complete their plan, at which time they will once again get busy mobilizing concerned residents of Halifax to show their support at Municipal Council for making the Khyber Building a sustainable and accessible hub for a diverse range of grassroots community endeavors. You have been listening to my interview with Rebecca Rose and Susan Wolfe. They've been talking with me about Friends of the Khyber, a grassroots group in Halifax, Nova Scotia, working to preserve a historic building that has for decades been an important space for a wide range of grassroots projects, groups, and communities in the city. To learn more about their work, go to friendsofthekyber.org. That's all one word, and Khyber is spelled K-H-Y-B-E-R, friendsofthekyber.org. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca.